Titan isn't a place? Uh, no. Weird, huh? Uh, it's called Attack on Titan. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. That's just how you, much I know uh, about this anime. You stand on the Titan. Live from the Mundangerous Force Cage in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Yishin. And welcome to episode 316 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about how to use control effects in your game. But first the party takes on a tower in the Gates of Morning campaign. And later, Aaron Yeager is a Titanic fighter in the Character Creation Forge. Uh, so we were off last week. Um, uh, not in- unintentionally. Yeah. Unplanned absence, yeah. Uh, so I was in London for work the week before. Uh, took a successful test on Friday. Flew home Saturday only to find that all of my precautions for the past two years over this pandemic to keep my family safe were for naught. Despite my travels to COVID-infested England, uh, the enemy was already inside the walls and my family uh, was already COVID positive and then I was COVID positive and then it was a nightmare week. Hence, there was no episode last week. Right. Although, look, we, we made a very good faith effort to record anyway and it just never quite came together. Yeah, well, I mean, so our symptoms were very manageable but like having a baby home all day long while trying to work while sick um and then also like covid brain fog and then like not having an like desperately needing sleep it was just a bad mix and i could i literally could not bring myself to like sit down for an hour um i just like i just could not function i for one am disappointed in us for not putting the podcast above uh health and family yeah, well, about that. <laughs> so so there's another component to this health or family situation, too, that we should probably talk about, Ishan. Yeah, I think we were going to tell you a couple of weeks ago, but we just haven't had the time. Shane, would you like to do the honors? Uh, yeah, I guess I'll do the honors since it's my news, but we're having another <laughs> baby. That's two pandemic babies in one pandemic um, uh, due in June. So uh, imminently um arriving our our second baby and uh um so my wife is eight weeks pregnant and also had covid which as now that everyone's yeah well now that everyone is happy and healthy again right because we're we're through it um we find out it's actually a really good thing because that means that the baby will have antibodies because he's developed enough to like have his mother's antibodies. Uh, and also when we go through the hospital protocols or whatever, she's now COVID recovered, which is a, an easier set of protocols for her to deal with in the hospital. Uh, and then I still have to get like, you know, handled, <laughs> but that's fine. It's not about me for once. Look, when, when we had pandemic baby, it was like the phase where we were like, uh, great, are you testing partners? And they're like, oh, no, no, you should just probably wear a mask. And we're like, oh, cool. Okay, great. Yeah, that's that's where we were, too. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we still have to wear a mask, though. <laughs> All right, so Shane, congratulations. Uh, this does mean that we are dropping into our baby protocol as we did. Mm-hmm. Was it 
Was it only last year? Jesus, it wasn't it, that It was year. about 18 months ago. Oh, my God. Okay. Uh, which means for the foreseeable future, we will be going to bi-weekly episodes, and we will be jumping back into an actual play. Yeah, so uh, the actual play is your domain. So what is this one going to be called, and what are we doing, Ishan? Well, I think we're going to continue the adventures of Tez Proudgale. In mm-hmm. Eberron, in actual play number three, this one is called Never Been Gished. Oh, my God. <laughs> because we, we are going to run through uh, an adventure from Strixhaven, the uh, 5th edition D&D uh, source book for playing in magical school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so... Has just graduated, and yet he's heading back to the classroom along with good friends Skelebro and Meepo. I wonder how that's going to go. You're going with never been gished and not the postgraduate. Uh, mm, yeah, yeah, no, I definitely am. We will see. We'll cover it uh, in just a couple weeks in our session zero while we sort of run through what we've got planned for you. Um, Alrighty, that'll be interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great. <laughs> right. And unlike uh, actual play number two, we're not promising how long it's going to last. More like actual play number one, we're just going to play it till it finishes. Um, we might come back to weekly before it finishes or not. We'll just sort of see how baby stuff goes. Well, naturally, because we have no planned timeline for this one, we'll finish it in like four episodes and then wonder what we're doing. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. I'll need to <laughs> dig up another pre-planned adventure and then rip it apart. Yeah. Then we'll do the Tez Proudgale in the postgraduate. So you heard it here first. Stay tuned. All right. Where are we in the Gates of Morning campaign? So the Gates of Morning campaign is our fifth edition D&D game set in Eberron, a sequel of sorts to the original Morning Glory campaign. And in the Shadow Marches, at the Gate of Wind, the party is trying to stop the quarry from unleashing the chaos of Zoria onto the material plane. The triage teleporter has brought them to a mysterious forest hidden in a canyon far from Fairhaven. And here, the quarry are building another Riedrin Hanbalan, this time using one of the gates of Zoriat as its core. In bird form, Warden scouts the area. The swamp-like shadow marches spread in every direction, but the canyon has its own biome. Ringing the rim are oak trees, which he knows are not native to this area, but they're all leafless, as if in midwinter. So, still weak from their assault on the cathedral, the party climbs high into a nearby tree to hide and rest through the heat of the day. They can see that the Hambalan is near completion, so they resolve to take it by force. After spying aberrant soldiers guarding the area, they attack from a distance. From hiding, Zan flings bolts of eldritch energy and Lenore fires her bow, while the others run for the tower. Perched atop its apex hundreds of feet above them, they spot a lone figure who leaps to the ground, landing lightly on bare feet before unleashing a flurry of blows into Switch Ambrim. Lenore recognizes her as Torn, the prisoner she was escorting to the Lazar Principalities on the Day of Mourning. But now a halo of psychic energy blooms from her temples, and she fires lightning at the party with movements faster than their eyes can follow. 
Warden faces the aberrant soldiers as an air elemental, flinging them high into the sky, and Lenore and Zan pick them off while closing their ranks. Vesicod confronts Torn directly, and she seems to have a particular hatred for the Kalistar. The pair trade psionic spells until she takes aim with a long finger and looses a bolt of lightning directly at him. In a vain attempt to block the blow, Vesicod holds up the resonant crystal he took from Malakathero in Flame Peak. The hit knocks it out of his hand and into his chest, where it pierces a spot directly over his heart, unlocking a torrent of psychic energy. Instead of killing him, it releases the essence of Kod, his quarry spirit, and the translucent scorpion-like form of a Tsukora quarry bubbles and coalesces around him. Yushin, what is the Tsukora quarry? <laughs> there are uh, multiple kinds of uh, quarry, you know, dream monsters. Uh, the Tsukora are the soldier version. They look a little bit like scorpions, and then it. Uh, there are others with, like... Uh, creepy eyeball bodies and with you know a halo of eyeballs and you know all do different kinds of things uh Tsukar are like the the foot soldiers okay i asked jim he's like what's uh what is cod he's like mm, give me a fighty guy Tsukar it was i'm glad that you knew the answer to that because jim definitely <laughs> didn't at the time <laughs> all right back to the fight with cod now in control the kalistar fights back with his new claws tearing into the new body of its ancient enemy. But each time Torn seems like she's about to succumb to the onslaught, the apex of the tower glows and her wounds heal. The tower glows once again, and a wave of magical energy puts Bramble to sleep. Then the trees on the ridge begin to stir. Not trees, but treants, their leafless branches grasping like claws made of spears. Then, they each begin to tree-stride down to the canyon floor to rush the party. And we'll find out what happens next, next week. So this week we are continuing our series, which I think has only had one installation thus far on combat tactics. Yes. So uh, the first episode in this series was 291. We did focus fire. Uh, the idea behind this one is that we've been uh, breezing through a lot of RPG mechanics, assessing their tactical value uh, throughout uh, the 300 episodes of this podcast. But sometimes listeners stop us and ask us what we're talking about. Uh, so the purpose of this is to um, have a series where we discuss the tactics we use most often on our table that apply to just about any game um, and sort of demystify what some of the terms and tactics are. Now, if you're a lifelong power gamer, there might not necessarily be anything new or groundbreaking that we're about to talk about, but it's worth covering a lot of the basics that we assume are in play when we're evaluating the power level of different options in a game. And also, it's important to come to these discussions, understanding the perspective of people who maybe haven't spent as much time um, interrogating the mechanics of a game or, you know, new players. Uh, so I think it's useful for everyone. So speaking of which, what do we mean by control effects? So control effects are just the broad catch-all term for effects that limit the target's choice of action rather than directly harming them. 
So this is going to be a lot of debuffs, but not exclusively debuffs. Like, doesn't have to target the enemy directly, could just impact them. So, you know, battlefield uh, manipulation, as well as, you know, blinding the enemy. Yeah, impairing their movement, paralyzing, stunning, dazing, blinding, silencing. Um, it it can mean injuring them, although it doesn't necessarily. Um, the injury usually needs to be some have some kind of debilitating effect, um, or or you know have the effect of weakening them. In certain systems, an injury itself might turn into a control effect if you're able to immobilize or destroy a limb for something like that, for example, or uh, if you're playing a game that has a death spiral. Um, but you know, then you have your like weakness, vulnerability, uh, armor shredding losing a weapon or losing an ability to attack something like that it might also be about manipulating the battlefield itself creating difficult terrain um, removing line of sight or adding cover to prevent targeting um, counterspell effects or even anti-magic zones that uh, prevent enemies from using their abilities uh, in the best way possible and then of course there's also the like taunts and compulsion and mind control right the literal controlling their action effects um in which you dictate what they do directly um those are also control effects but the the, the common theme here is that you as you know as you mentioned they work because they force enemies to act suboptimally right um or alternatively they ensure that your allies get to target them either with their optimal use or ideally with an advantage against those targets. Yeah, because these usually play into the action economy of a game, right? Sure, it costs you your action in order to apply a control effect. Usually, in order for a control effect to be good, you are costing the enemies more actions than your single action. Either one enemy is debilitated for a long period of time or you're you know, handling multiple enemies. Um, I think the open secret here about control effects is that, in general, in most games, they're better than something like raw damage. And and that is not something that is always apparent to new or maybe, in my case, young players, right? Where you're like, oh, I love the big numbers. Yeah, give me the fireball. Yeah, there's definitely a uh, a bit of a personality trait of just wanting to roll the biggest number of dice possible to see a big number. Uh, and then there's like the control player who's just kind of sitting there quietly smirking, knowing that they added, you know, 50% of those dice to the pool. And like most of that damage was enabled by them. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, after a while, you've seen enough big numbers, right? Or, you know, you can get big numbers whenever you want, but can you shut down an entire encounter with one spell or one action? <laughs> One perfectly orchestrated, <laughs> one Rube Goldberg of an action. Look, eight d six is great. <laughs> but have you ever mass dominated? All right. So now that you know that you want to control enemy actions and options, how do you apply them? So as you alluded to, we need to model the action economy, right? Like control effects are all about getting more value out of your action. Uh, or, or are all about denying more value from your enemy than it costs you from your action. So we have to figure out some way of doing this. The way that I usually do it is basically you treat each round 
uh, every character gets an action, and that's worth one, right? One action. An action is an action. If the fight lasts five rounds, then every character who survives to the end will have gotten five actions. If you die in the second round, you only got two. You were denied three. <laughs> Does that make sense? Like, very simple model. Like bits because you know, uh, death is the best control effect. I mean, actually, ultimate. dominate is the best control effect, but you know, yeah, you know right? The saying sounds better with death. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's the it's the final control effect. <laughs> um, okay, so so then then there's just the steps that you kind of go through and you evaluate your actions, right? And you evaluate um, the value that you're getting out of it and how you're applying it. So the first thing, consider the effect of the debuff. How much does it hurt the enemy's action economy? Is it, you know, does it make them half as effective at whatever they prefer to do? Does it make them, you know, a quarter effective? Like, what what's the outcome, right? So if you think of, like, some common con kind of effects, like weakness, right? It, it makes your target deal half damage. Uh, if your role is to deal damage, that's your primary purpose, then that makes each of your actions worth half, right? half as effective uh if your role is to tank and damage is kind of incidental then maybe your action is worth like you know incrementally less so like it's a 0.8 or a 0.9 action right so it's a 10 percent or a 20 percent debuff it's just a it's a it's a ballpark estimate then take a look at something like counter spell which just makes their spell fail now if the spell was the main thing that they were going to do which is the case with most spellcasters, then their action was worth zero which is a great return on your investment. Yeah. Now, depending on which spell you're choosing to counterspell, or if this was an incidental or minor spell that, that they were using, you can't always necessarily tell, then you haven't blocked the majority or even, you haven't blocked all or even the majority of their uh, ability or action. And so the, your counterspell is worth much less. Right. Like that's, that's your, you know, 0.8 or 0.9. Uh, another example is like destroying a primary weapon, right? So you then have to compare the value of their next best alternative. So if you lose your ranged weapon, then the enemy has to, then you have to look at what their melee output looks like. Sometimes it's basically the same. <laughs> and and so like destroying a ranged weapon might not mean a whole lot. Um, other times, like they they might be, you know, half as good at melee or they might be you know like three quarters as good in melee and that's that's the the effect that you have is you've degraded them by that much uh alternatively like they might be positioned wrong as a result of destroying their weapons so they now have to spend a turn moving into melee that they otherwise could have spent shooting and then that costs them one action right things like that so you're just trying to figure out what are you denying your opponent in aggregate Right. What's the total effect of doing that? And if, and if this math, quote unquote math, feels a little bit loosey goosey, it's it's because it is. Like there's a lot of system mastery built into this, right? If you can destroy an opponent's weapon, if you're playing a system where it costs actions to draw another weapon, then that's probably a good use of your action. Whereas something mm -hmm. like 5e, it's incidental along with a move action. So it it doesn't cost the enemy anything to pull out another weapon and to, to essentially fix the problem that you caused. Exactly. Um, at the same time, you, I mean, you are always sort of guessing 
in the first instance, like the first time you meet an enemy or are learning an enemy's tactics about like how useful or effective some of these debuffs are going to be. So like as a character who uses control effects, often you're just sort of like laying down your blanket one and seeing how that affects them, mm -hmm. you know, testing the waters, so to speak. Um, and then depending on how they respond or the the output of the enemy then you're going to be able to make better decisions either later in this combat or in, in future combat. Like, for example, I think about uh, if you're fighting a high-level monk who can hit you four times for a bunch of damage or, you know, whatever, the Tarrasque, right? How useful is it to drop something like a weakness on the Tarrasque? On paper, really, really useful because it is dealing out a ton of melee damage to you. And cutting that in half sounds like a great use of your action. But if the Tarrasque was doing so much overkill that it was going to kill you with its first three attacks and didn't need the additional three, then dropping the weakness doesn't help you. You're still dead. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, I mean, overkill is its own. That's probably should go on our list, too, actually. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, and to that, like, that's all in... Uh, how you measure the effect right and like that is that is totally like to that point where system mastery comes into effect and where being a good player is different from being a good role player mm. right playing the the game system is different than like playing your character in these situations however you would think were you a control mage right that you would have a pretty good sense of how to size up your opponents for vulnerability to your control mage spells you know likewise like if you're the uh, the the crafty, dirty, underhanded fighter, you'd probably be pretty adept at picking out pressure points that you could uh, and and weaknesses to exploit in your opponent, right? And that's what you're trying to trying to model for yourself and for your character. Yeah, I think that's actually a, a really good point here. Like, sure, this episode is about tactics, but you can definitely bring in your personality traits, right? Like, I'm the ranger, right? I'm the pocket sand gladiator. You know, what is the first thing that I do in this fight? I size up the opponent. You know, mm -hmm. give me the information that I can use in order to select the proper control effect here. Right. Um, okay, so back to our framework, though. The next thing we got to consider, we know what the effect is. Now we got to consider the length of the debuff, right? Because uh, a combat is multiple turns, and not all control effects last exactly one turn. Right, so you, you basically figure out how many actions will this effect apply to, right? How long will they be hampered? Um, how many rounds does it last? And then what can they do to end it early? And what is the cost of ending it early, right? Um, you know, because you, that, that's an added debuff, right? If, you know, if they can only end an effect early by, say, taking an action to end it, well, that denies them one whole action, mm -hmm. right? Um, if it's a repeatable save, it might not cost them any action, but you might have to try to guess like, okay, well, how good is that save? Like, what is their likelihood of passing it? How many rounds am I likely to get through? Is it, they're probably, you know, they're probably a 50, 50 chance. So they failed the first one. They're liable to, to make either the next one or the one after. So get a sense of how long will this effect actually apply in the game? Yeah, pretty much the first thing I read is, you know, how does this end? You know, and if you if you look at, I'm just going to use some like D&D &D examples here 
because um, they're the ones we talk about the most, especially like in the Forge. If you look at something like Hypnotic Pattern, that doesn't seem like a spell that is particularly strong right off the bat because it doesn't do any damage and it incapacitates creatures in like a small area. And if they take any damage, then they wake up, right? Um, but the actual end condition for Hypnotic Pattern is when all of us stand around one creature and then kill it. <laughs> and don't touch anyone else until we do the same thing to them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, or some, or any of the like the very low level um, abilities, and this goes for any game where it basically requires an action in order to undo. So like, oh, you set someone on fire, great, they're on fire until they spend an action to put themselves out. Often you'll have creatures that don't spend the action because it's not worth it to them because they're only taking like a d6 or you know two d6 fire damage per round. But like, great, that's free damage that they're never going to put out, right? Right. Or um, even like low, low, low level illusions still often require an action to investigate, to disbelieve. Now, yep. they're going to figure it out. They're going to like stick a hand through it and they, they know. The point is not to fool them forever. The point is to waste an entire monster's action with my dumb cantrip. Exactly. <laughs> the, the flip side of that, though, is there are absolutely traps in D&D. Uh, mm. where your target has to fail a save, and then they make a save at the beginning of their turn, right? And so it is possible that the effect will be over and done with before they ever actually take their turn. And so whatever debuff you've applied only applies to character... Or is only, like, the window for benefiting from it is only characters who act between you and the monster. It's It can be rough, <laughs> Yeah, you get into those scenarios where you, you kind of need to like walk through it in your head to figure out what is the minimum effect that I can have. And often there are a lot of uh, abilities where you're they're always going to lose at least one turn, right? Because like mm -hmm. it kicks in at the end of their turn. And so like one is automatically wasted and you have the potential for wasting more. And you sort of look at that as like, that's like 1.1, right? Because you right. don't want to like... <laughs> Yeah, you don't want to like overvalue towards like, oh, they're going to be stunlocked forever. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So play it out in your head so that you have an idea of what you can count on. Because you'll also get into the situation where the designers of all games sometimes overvalue really strong effects to the point where they nerf the application of them. So mm -hmm. if you look at something like often petrification, is like, you know, if you turn someone to stone, like you win, right? Like the, the fight is over. So that means that enemies typically get a bunch of different saves, an initial save and then a save first, like different levels of it. And if you actually like look at that, there are many scenarios in which absolutely nothing happens to them. So I think we've implied this, but the next step here is going to be to total up the effect, right? And, and that's basically count how much of a debuff are you applying or inversely, how much of a buff to your allies are you applying? Right. And for how long? Uh, and then just sum that up. So, you know, if if you have uh, like you can apply weakness for three turns, then that makes them half as effective in combat. So that's one and a half actions worth of debuff, one half times three. Right. If you have an effect that is going to, you know, cost them one full action on their next turn and then possibly like repeat the save and could cost them one more action on their their following turn like that 
depending on the odds of that save, like could be worth, you know, one and a half times or maybe even more if they if you're targeting a weaker save. Right. So you could be looking at, you know, 1.75 actions, something like that. If you have a, a major like long lived debuff, you know, it could be a you know a big effect over longer term, right? Like petrify, for example. If you have just straight up petrification and no alternative save, that's a full action loss for as long as the fight goes, right? Like you've just taken an enemy out of the fight. So that is, I mean, effectively infinite, but let's call it five, right? Like that's a really good use of an action. Uh, if you're a monster, you probably want to lead with petrify. <laughs> <laughs> Banish also great in this instance, right? Although that's, that's usually one of those. that's like it's zero or five, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because banish is the one minute, right? And like how often does a fight go 10 rounds, right? Or um, the, the offensive use of plane shift, right? Mm. Where you just send somebody to another plane. It's like, it's either, <laughs> it's either forever or they have plane shift and it's an action to get back. Right. <laughs> But they did take one round of fire damage because, of course, I sent them to the elemental plane of fire. Duh. Oh, that's you wouldn't send them to the elemental plane of void. It depends on they're what just they're made pulled of. Apart. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. So once you uh, have figured out the total of the effect, you of course need to figure out what it costs you. How many actions does it cost you? To do this, and and I think you're you're probably envisioning this as like, oh, it's one action. I'm casting a spell, which is the typical D and D fantasy version of a control effect. But there are many ways to uh, afflict enemies with control effects. Uh, grappling, for instance, is extremely high cost. Yeah, grappling is 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 an interesting one because the cost of grappling decreases as your attacks per round go up, right? Because grappling is, it costs you an attack, right? Um, so if you have four attacks, it costs you a quarter of your action. However, uh, it also like has to be maintained, right? So it restricts right, it your you movement. Positioning. Yeah, exactly. It, it restricts, like you probably cannot justify using a two-handed weapon while grappling, for example. Um, you know, so you have things like that. Um, but then all of the add-on things that you can do with a grapple, right? The advantages you can generate when your opponent has zero movement speed, uh, for example, tripping them and knocking them prone, and now they grant advantage to your allies, right? The, that becomes incrementally cheaper and higher value. So it's like a, it's a good setup action, though on its own grappling is almost always kind of lousy. Plus you've got to factor in the cost of having to look up the rules. That's the real cost, the mm -hmm. mental load. <laughs> the the permanent grappling debuff for your entire table. We should definitely talk about that later, the mental load of remembering all your debuffs. <laughs> a debuff forgotten is a debuff wasted. That's true. <laughs> um, but also, you know, maybe you're playing Imperial Guard, right? And yes, you're laying down fire, but you're laying down suppressive or cover fire. Right. In order in order to control, um, you know. The demon that just came through a, the, the Geller field, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that's <laughs> what Imperial Guardsmen do. They, they covering fire for demons. Cool example, Ishan. Really proud of you and all the 40K Thanks. RPGs we've played. You've learned a lot. Look, awesome. when, when a space marine tells you to do a thing, you do a thing. Right. That's true. I guess. <laughs> 
<laughs> and what is the cost here? It's you'll be dead in a round. But <laughs> <laughs> the cost is is free because you died for the emperor. <laughs> <laughs> but again, think mechanically. Like what what does it cost you in order to do that? Is it multiple characters who all need to spend their action? Do you need to do a setup in order to, you know, like get the heavy uh, artillery in a position where it can actually fire downrange, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Um, concentration is also another good edge case. Um, and, and those kind of like concentration-like effects for D&D, right, where you have to repeat an action to maintain an effect or you limit the number of spells that you can cast that have the concentration tag, things like that. Um, not only does it mean, you know, does me casting a concentration spell now mean I can't use a different concentration spell, it also makes you a target, right? Like, it, it instantly paints like, oh, okay, my lose condition is here, my win condition is ending that, and how do I do that? I start hitting the mage, right? Um, and so that makes, that, that puts you at bigger risk, right? And then also every time you get hit with a concentration spell, you know, there's a chance you roll low, uh, even with a with a base save, and now your effect has ended early. So there's some extra variability into how long does an effect last. Mm -hmm. This is also the point in your planning where you're going to start realizing that that combo that you love so much probably isn't worth it. <laughs> because it takes uh, yeah. <laughs> so many turns to set up, but also relies on failed saves or proper positioning or you being able to unhindered get off to particular abilities and have them succeed or hit or whatever before you can do your amazing cool thing mm -hmm. yeah this is the now becomes the sole domain of the sorcerer <laughs> <laughs> with uh with with a quicken spell and a cantrip that's the like Right. I mean, and this is kind of the grapple combo thing. Like, ah, oh, I could pin them and then they can't do anything. Yeah. Yeah, you can. Five rounds from now, if you're lucky. Oh, <laughs> uh, you've never played a battle master, my friend. <laughs> Three rounds from now. <laughs> this round, Rogue, do your damnedest. <laughs> you and, get one shot, shiv them. <laughs> and then. This is the time when it's actually useful to have your, you know, newbie friend who is just trying to roll big numbers at hand, because then you can sort of compare where you are. If you know it takes three rounds for you to end the encounter, because everyone is going to be locked down with your amazing spell or you turn the battlefield to mud or whatever, um, if your power gamer friend over here would have been able to kill everyone in two rounds, then your control effects need to be stronger mm -hmm. I, and also like you need to look at your own kit too right is is it a situation where you also have high damage options and a middling control effect is actually less valuable to the group than just you doing the damage that you're good at right this is like the <laughs> the like the dalliance mage right like oh i'm specced for fireball but sometimes i like to cast you know hold person and it's like all right hang on man like Look, we brought a fireball mage to fireball things. There's like eight enemies here. Like, don't try and be cute. Just fireball. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, I know you really want to use Storm of Vengeance, but Meteor Swarm is right there. Exactly. <laughs> and that city is right there. 
So this is the point then where you're comparing the cost and the effect and trying to decide, is this a net gain or, or is it a net loss for your action economy, right? So if you're spending a whole action to apply a minor, you know, 20% debuff to one enemy, probably not a great use of an action. Uh, if it's a 20% debuff to four enemies and it lasts a guaranteed three rounds, okay, that's great. I mean, now that math checks out, right? Like you're you're starting to stack a pretty significant debuff on your opponent. I think once you actually do this math a couple of times and start using it in different game systems or in areas that maybe didn't get that much attention from the designers, you start to uncover really interesting options. Mm -hmm. uh, like... There are a lot of like older kind of like solved games where like everybody knows everything about the game. And one thing that happens a lot of the times in maybe older games is like stun weapons are either amazing or completely terrible and useless. And that's because no one really sort of like interrogated the math of them in mm -hmm. the way that we're suggesting that you do here. So, you know, it was like, oh, it's just a stun weapon. It's not a blaster. Who cares about it? It's not a lightsaber. No one wants to use these things, which is why no one checked to make sure that like there's basically a 95% chance that you knock someone out with one hit and they stay down for 10 rounds. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's the it's the old like ion blaster problem. Right, right. right. Of, like, oh, it ignores shields. It goes straight to hull and it's not permanent. Cool. I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I'm going to do is just I'm gonna just shoot everyone, shoot everyone like that. Oh, and they're cheap, too. OK, right. Right. Because yeah. they were like, cool. You know what's cool? Winning. Right, exactly. It's like the, uh, there's like, I don't know, three ways in D&D &D to add exhaustion to things. And like, they're all OP. Because if you stack it twice, your opponent is useless. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh -huh. Now, you know, if if they succeed, then nothing happens, right? Because there's, there's no like half exhaustion track. Right. At right. least in D&D. There are, there are in other games. Exactly. All right, so let's talk about some caveats here, uh, and one that you've already touched on, um, but bears reiteration, right? Like, we're describing this math stylistically, but at the end of the day, like, an RPG is not a war game. You aren't supposed to have perfect information about your enemy. You have to make assumptions, and all of the math we've described is directional. It's not, like, it's not empirical, right? Uh Unless you happen to have the entire system laid out in front of you and you want to go empirically solve things, like, sure, go for it. But, like, in the moment in play, like, you're trying to make an assessment of, like, how dangerous is this threat? How big of an, of an hindrance am I able to put on them? How long will it last? What's my next best thing to do? Right? Like, you're making a lot of assumptions. And the quality of your choice is always driven by those assumptions. That's also where the fun of the game is, right? Like, not knowing what the perfect decision is and and having some randomness to it to determine like what the outcome is like that's what makes it fun so that's what you're going for that's what we're playing with here yeah go into this expecting that you're going to screw up sometimes and like roll with it and like be interested in the surprise right so like you you don't usually know how long the fight is going to be like a gm will usually sort of telegraph how hard a fight is supposed to be but sometimes the point of the fight is to throw you off balance so you can't really tell right so you know there's usually opacity with like how many hits it'll take to kill an enemy or how many hit points they have or you know often what your allies will do 
Um, but yeah, that's the other thing. <laughs> right. If you don't want a quarterback at your table, uh, unreliable allies is also a heavy question mark. You know, when you're when you're playing direct damage and you're not playing control, all of these answers come pretty quickly. I hit a thing. Did it die? It didn't die. Okay, that means it has a lot of hit points. When you're playing control, it takes you a little bit longer because you've got an additional step in there, right? So, like, if if I have now used hold person on a monster that I think is, like, really tough, if I have paralyzed it, that I still don't have information about how tough it is. Someone has to go up and stab it. And mm-hmm. if it dies immediately, now I'm like, oh, I, well, I, I think I wasted that. Yeah, did I or did I? Or did I, right. Did it, was I the reason that it died right away? Or was it going to anyway and I wasted it on a one hit point minion? Right. And that's that that's the that's the unknown of control, right? Is like you can never be a hundred percent sure that you had any effect. But you know, when you do, man, does it feel good. <laughs> yeah. I mean sometimes you have to you have to like crow to get your last touch attribution. Right. Exactly. <laughs> no, no, that was me. I I killed it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I spent three rounds setting this thing up for right. you to one shot it. Like that's my kill. I don't care if you delivered the final dagger. Like, right. Put you don't get last mile board. credit. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> like like I got that I got the rocket to the surface of the moon just because you walked out the door doesn't mean it's just your win, okay? <laughs> All anyone remembers is Neil. <laughs> uh, nowadays, all anyone remembers is Buzz Aldrin because he's dedicated to fighting anybody who denies it happened. Literally, yeah. Yeah, I like that guy. <laughs> um, another caveat is uh, is the variance component. Um, two of these, but but first is kind of the variance among enemies in the fight. Right. So not all actions of your enemies are going to be equal in, in simple terms, like in D&D terms, like you're going to have some high CR monsters and you're going to have some lower CR monsters in any given fight. Um, you know, having really great control effects on lower threat monsters isn't great. <laughs> you like so you have to judge like having a, you know, uh, a smaller debuff on a bigger monster versus a bigger debuff on a smaller monster, like what's the higher value, things like that. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and just generally like, you know, elite monsters, smaller hindrances are going to be more beneficial because they have bigger output, right? On uh, on minions and chaff, like it's kind of not worth it. <laughs> like I don't really care if you're like, you know, zombie is completely locked down because the zombie was never really a threat to the party anyway and then you'll also have variants uh among enemies across different encounters so just because you properly solved and locked down the previous fight doesn't mean that that same tactic is going to work even if this fight looks very similar to the last one well then the the other side of that too is like man, what if there's a more important fight coming up, <laughs> right? Like if I, if I have limited spell slots and I blow my, my biggest spell slot on an, on a trivial encounter, like sure, I can win the fight against three goblins, but we were going to win that anyway. Now the dragon shows up and I don't have my fifth level spell slot. So did I play control correctly? 
I would argue you did not play control correctly. <laughs> That's why I'm a Marshall controller. <laughs> sure. I can do this all day. Exactly. Or at Til least every short rest. Until <laughs> I run out of trick arrows. I think that's pretty much the only way to do that. I'll say here, the caveat that I mentioned earlier, especially if you are afflicting many enemies with smaller debuffs, is that if you're not remembering them, then it's as if you never applied them. Actually, no, it's worse than if you never applied them, right? Because you still spent the... Yeah, you paid resource. for it. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you get this a lot with um, buffers as well, with like support characters, you know, reminding people to use mm -hmm. the ability that you gave them all the time. This is the thing that you need to do with your GM as well. And don't worry about like being annoying or whatever. Don't worry about being repetitive. Just always remind them, remember they have a minus two or remember they lost mm -hmm. a die here every single right. time, you know? Yeah, this is a great, great use of like extraneous dice on the table. If you have minis or something like, you know, put a red die next to the minis that have been hit by this. That way, when they come up and it's their action, it's very apparent to everybody that, oh, they have a red die. They're on fire. Right. Like be the be the prop pedant, you know, <laughs> who's like, hold on with it. Let me put on the bloody marker. Give me a second. Give me a sec. Give me right. a second. You know, and if everyone will eventually one get used to it but also appreciate it when it starts to benefit them um and then the last caveat is killing doesn't win every single fight right so you have to look at what your victory condition is for a given encounter uh and then measure the value of any given action in the economy accordingly so if your goal is to race to pull a lever before your enemy can get to it like hindering their damage probably isn't the best way to achieve that goal right hindering their movement uh even though it may be a you know quote unquote lesser uh control effect is probably going to be more valuable in that specific encounter so you have to keep in mind like what are you trying to actually accomplish in a given encounter and then measure the value of your effects accordingly which also means that when you're creating your character or selecting your gear or whatever lets you control things, um, it's good to diversify. You know, like, yes, hindering movement is usually not as good as some other control effects, but it's never a bad idea to have one option for hindering movement just for mm -hmm. when you absolutely need it. Chases. Yeah. Yeah. When you get chased. <laughs> Bag of cow shops doesn't cost anything. Exactly. <laughs> so the simplest is when the cost of creating the effect is greater than the benefit you get from the effect. Uh, there's no point in slowing somebody who's already in the center of a scrum if they want to be in the center of a scrum. Like, they've already hit their objective. Don't try to control them in that regard, right? It's just not enough value. Yeah, and, you know, don't get suckered in by sunk costs. Just because you have been setting this up if you realize that pulling the trigger isn't going to get you the effect that you want or isn't going to get you a big enough effect pull out try something else do something different you would say that i would not i will go through with it i spent three <laughs> turns setting this up i want to see the payoff even if it's muted just drop the fireball just do that <laughs> well that's the other thing is when damage shortens the fight that is often the best way to control a fight Right. So abandon complicated control effects if you can just end their actions sooner. Right. 
dead enemies don't take actions. Therefore, you know, that is the ultimate benefit to the party is just one more enemy out of the fight. So if you can throw a fireball and clear a bunch of enemies in, in one action, that's almost always going to be better than a big control dropped on one. Yeah, I think you can pretty quickly see that when you look at scale, right? Almost always you are controlling one character and so you're spending your one action or a couple actions over several turns. But you get the most bang for your buck when that one action can affect as many enemies as possible. So pretty easily you can see that the best way to to exert the most control is scale, is by using effects that affect a whole bunch of people. Even if they're mostly low level, you're going to catch some, some like middle of the road elites in there if, for example, you're able to affect an entire battlefield with something. Yep. And you also like remove the chance that nobody gets affected by anything because, you know, you have 14 enemies trying to resist something someone's going to fail. Right. Uh, there's probably also a corollary here where, um, <laughs> when your control effect lengthens the fight um <laughs> specifically because like your party is dying <laughs> you know like if there's something that you can be doing that is going to keep a party member alive longer uh and, and guarantee they get to act or you know set them up in a way that's going to like let them do what needs to be done in order to win the fight right like th that's also obviously more important um it doesn't necessarily have to be your damage that that fixes the situation, but you know, uh, an ally who's making their last death save, right? Like it is way, way better to get them up with one hit point than it is to let them die mm -hmm. because it turns out with one hit point, you've also lost the action economy right. <laughs> or I mean, you've, uh, with, 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 with zero, zero, one hit points, right? you're in the action economy. When you, when you are dead, dead, you're not. Um, I'd also say abandon control when it's not fun. Like in the moment, if if the control, if like the success is ruining fun for people at the table, then, you know, reconsider when you're using it or how you're using it. Like I, I actually think back to like my old Magic the Gathering days where, you know, at least in those days, the strongest decks were extreme control decks. Stasis was a big thing. It basically meant nobody could do anything and you just outlasted the other opponent until they ran out of cards or you like plinked them away with like one creature. But those made for super boring games. And mm -hmm. like that's fine in Magic the Gathering when like it's a competitive thing and it's just two of you and like I don't care if you had fun or not. But at a table, definitely consider if everyone is having fun. Yeah. Um Yeah. <laughs> no, nothing else needs to be said about mono blue control <laughs> how do you design encounters around battlefield control tactics you should be doing this anyway but diversify your threats so that they're not susceptible to one kind of control effect um it'll still be rewarding for the player to use but it doesn't mean that every single threat that you have placed on the table is now neutralized all at once yeah, and that's that's really what it's about, right? Is like they get a benefit for dropping control, but your entire combat is not negated by the control mage. Um, I think the the kind of uh, sibling of diversifying there is mitigating, right? So figure out ways to um, 
introduce monsters that are immune or resistant to control effects. Um, and then the, the trick here is to kind of keep in mind the way that you layer in those immunities is important because it really influences how valuable players feel at the table. So like having limited immunity, right? I'm immune to paralyzed uh, is cool. Having total immunity to all effects kind of sucks um, for the players. Um, and and what, what works here is that like you have multiple monsters, give each of them some immunities, right? So that when they're caught in blanket effects, some of them are immune, but some of them will be affected. But also like, you know, you don't have to worry about just again a single uh, a single effect ending your encounter or you know trivializing it mm -hmm. in terms of like hard counters 5e has legendary saves uh, other games have similar things where you just say no not permanently right you're not immune to an effect but you can say no a certain number of times before you've used it up in general though it it's no fun to have your ability as a player negated by a monster's like get out of jail free card, even if you know they're limited and you're trying to burn through them. Yeah, it's a necessary evil in 5e because of a series of decisions they painted themselves into a corner with and then realized they needed to buff the monsters to make fights work. So like it's not a necessary evil in games. It's just a compromise that we all have to deal with in fifth edition. Um, so I would recommend at a certain point, like just let the players burn them off, right? Like if you can, if you can catch one real spell with your legendary saves, like they've done their work and the players already feel bad enough, like let them use crap spells, burn them off with your legendary saves and let the fight proceed. Cause like, otherwise, like if you just keep holding them waiting for like, you know, their coup de gras moves, like you're stretching the combat so long and no one is getting to do what they like, right? The mere threat of a legendary save, like the threat of a counter spell has now had a way outsized influence on the behavior of the players. And it's just to me completely detrimental to enjoying the game. You know, that's why I always go fishing with my ray of enfeeblement for a little while, <laughs> you know, until I, mean, I know that it's safe to use hold monster. <laughs> exactly. Like that's the thing, right? It's just like, come on, man. Like, can we just use hold monster and move on? Like, all right, you can also use control effects yourself. Um, we say this uh, in every uh, episode where we talk about using a particular iconic monster. The optimal tactics to use are not always, maybe almost never, are optimally fun for the table, right? So, like, is it an effective use of control to stunlock players? Yes, of course it is. Is it interesting or fun tactically at the table? No, in, in no way whatsoever right yeah so with that in mind right try to use broader control effects that are going to be a minor hindrance to everyone or that will alter the battlefield in an interesting and like tactically complicated way um rather than hitting a big control effect on one player who is now removed from the fun yeah and this will also introduce variables that players can then potentially use right like changing the battlefield or terrain or something like that is then then an opportunity for inventive players to interact with that environment if you are going to stun or paralyze or do something like that completely shuts down a character make sure that it's very short-lived 
Um, it's not helpful just to give the opportunity to keep making saves because you probably had the best chance of resisting an effect the first time that you were up against it. That, that's usually how abilities work in RPGs. Yeah, and also just like if you fail the initial save, like odds are you're you're likely to fail the following saves as well, right? right you you probably move. pull out all the stops in order to like yeah. get as high a bonus as you could, and now you don't have that available anymore. Right, or or it's just a high DC, right? Like a, a you know like a DC eighteen, right? Is like if you aren't specialized in that saving throw, like you're talking about what maybe a. 15% chance of hitting it like something like that like ah uh, boy <laughs> like we're we're really not looking good here you know like um, I gotta roll this thing five times in order to get my one and five sit like come on um, right and what have we already determined five times means you're out of the fight that's the whole fight yeah mm-hmm. exactly um so the the way to come around this I think is to provide a way to end an effect that doesn't require a save right so if an ally helps or you know uh an ability that you know that they have in their pocket uh will will mitigate this like great like you've cost them the action you've you've required somebody to do something they didn't necessarily want to spend their turn doing you know what that's a that's a pretty good effect you've you've harmed two players at that point like let's call that good move on with the fight play the game Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is uh, something I miss actually from fourth edition D and D, where the entire leader role had many ways to uh, grant additional saving throws. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's talk about how to incorporate control effects into your fiction. So we have hinted at this uh, a little bit earlier, and and probably bears a little bit of repeating, but just like whatever your um, reason for having control, uh, like for being a control character like incorporate that right so if you're the dirty fighter or like the the measured gladiator or you're the you know control mage wizard like your character probably has some reason for being that way and some type of experience and so just make sure you're flavoring whatever actions they're taking around that experience right i'm a gladiator i size up my opponent right i look for weaknesses right i look for openings that I can take advantage of because if I don't do that, uh, I die for the entertainment of the crowd. <laughs> and I think this is useful advice for both the GM and the players. The GM obviously is the one deciding usually where a combat is taking place. So you have already seeded the environment. So use those environmental effects, right? Like if there's a control effect that you know, makes the area difficult to maneuver through. Yes, like the ground could be turned to mud, but that, and that could happen anywhere. But if you're in a library, it could also be that shelves have been knocked over and there are books all over the floor, you know, knee deep. And that's why it's difficult to maneuver. And oh, that, a pile of books and not just a, not just flying parchment, like whipping across the battlefield. Oh, razor sharp <laughs> animated well, it parchments. doesn't even have to be razor sharp it's just dang inconvenient <laughs> uh, but if you're a player you can do the same thing too if you're a pyromancer and what you usually do in order to control is burn things like fine or whatever like bring that flavor into your description 
based on your location and who you're up against. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so flavor things is like heat effects, right? That's kind of your theme. Also, we're in a library, so like, you know, <laughs> have at it. Um, you can also like make control effects personal, uh, and, and in this case might be even literal, but like, you know, if you are magically paralyzing somebody, like, um, uh, what is it? The like that monk ability, right? Like quivering palm, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Like, I don't know. That's actually a kill. It's a kill effect, but like, you know, describe it as like you magically feel like the the target's beating heart in your hand, right? Like that's the effect that you feel. You literally have that kind of control over them, right? Or like conversely, if you're afflicted by it. Like it feels as though the mage has reached into your chest and is like squeezing your heart and you can't move, right? Like that that's, you know, flavored in a way that just feels like you've lost control, right? Yeah, and at any moment your heart could burst into flame while, while they start chanting. <laughs> sure. Great. That wasn't exactly what I was going for, but you know, it's the, the icy grip of fear, Ishan. <laughs> <laughs> but sure, let's go with old Temple of Doom. <laughs> A classic. Um of its time, let's say that. A classic of its time, yeah. yeah. Uh aged forward. Mm. In conclusion. Control effects can be a lot more fun than I think people initially give them credit for. I know there are control fetishists out there who are like have always been super into it and know how effective it can be, but those are often the people who all go overboard as well, you know. So, like, keep your eyes on the prize. You want this to be fun for everyone at the table, and I think it really mixes things up where not everyone is always simply focused on like dpr you know i i completely agree uh i i know i personally started to enjoy dnd a lot more when i stopped trying to make numbers bigger because there's always bigger numbers always <laughs> but numbers. you know sometimes like getting the getting a good good battlefield control character into place and making it all come together and really enabling the team. Like that's the chef's kiss moment. All right. Do you hear that? Ishan? That's just the slowly quivering heart of my opponent. And that's nestled gently in the palm of my hand. Well, if you've got a heart in the palm of your hand, then I'm moving on to the character creation forge to build a new one. But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sense Carne. That's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And join the conversation on Discord. There's a link in the show notes. All right, so here we are, anime, finally, which means that every week this month in the Character Creation Forge, we are building you an anime character, and this week it is Aaron Yeager, the main character of Attack on Titan, who is part of a specialist core that kills giants called Titans who eat people. 
Uh, until, spoiler, he finds out that he can turn into a titan himself. And then becomes Wait. a giant, giant killer. Wait a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, titan isn't a place? Uh, no. Weird, huh? Uh, it's called Attack on Titan, but it's not an attack on Jupiter's moon Titan. <laughs> that, that's correct, yes. Mm-hmm. And it's not mm-hmm. an attack on a space station or ship named Titan? That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right, yep. all right. Well, yeah. That's just how you, much I know uh, about this anime. You stand on the Titan. Um, I have stood on the shoulders of Titans. Okay. And ripped out the uh, nape of their neck. Right. Attack a top Titan. Got it. Sure. All right. Cool. So what's the build? It is Rune Knight Fighter 18, Ranger 2. Now you might be saying, Ranger 2, look, you could go Barbarian 2, and that is the, you know, punch more build version of this, which I think is perfectly fine i think ranger is a little more fun here because we're going to start off with two levels of ranger because aaron doesn't start off being able to turn into a titan he doesn't know that he can do that uh he watches his mom get eaten by a titan and he says i will kill them all okay which is favorite enemy giants (laughs) yeah so they fridged his mom Mm-hmm. And then he gets a favorite enemy. Got yep. it. Yep. Uh, you're going to take the uh, option for canny. Athletics is probably good here because you're going to, you know, feats of strength is definitely a thing that Aaron is known for. But intimidation is also good. It's very easy to frighten people when you can turn into a, a giant monster. Uh, and he gets very good at deception eventually later as he's sort of manipulating enemies and allies alike. So that's also mm-hmm. an option. Okay. I like Ranger here because in addition to favorite enemy, um, the the Titan is very resistant to all kinds of damage. And this build gives you a decent amount of that. But then you can also get um, low-level Ranger spells like Absorb Elements because there are times when, you know, the Titan is able to resist fire damage, for example. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can also take the option to get... Uh, druid cantrips and i like guidance because the attack titan does have like the memories of the previous titan owners and so that's always information that you can use in the moment to help you make better decisions Uh, zephyr strike is also a decent spell here Uh, the uh, in titan form uh, aaron is basically subsonic Um, space marine speeds you know and and zephyr Ah. strike is a good way to model that got it all right, and then it's just straight up 18 levels of fighter because this is what lets you turn into a giant. couple of notes here. A lot of the builds I see for Aaron are like, you know, trying to figure out how to get him to fight with no armor. Just reflavor your armor in Titan form. Like, you're naked. Great, just be naked. You know, like D&D <laughs> does not care about your armor because it never asks if you're wearing it. That's true. Uh, and then also... I don't think I've suggested this before. Reflavor the regeneration. Um, Aaron can eventually like regrow an arm. He can regenerate damage to his Titan form almost instantaneously, eventually, because it's not it's not like a real body. Uh, here's the thing: when you play this character, just play with HP as meat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That <laughs> sounds like a short rest to me. <laughs> Every time you take damage, no matter what, oh, I got hit with a ray of frost for four damage. Great, you lost two fingers. You know? It's unfortunate. 
Mm -hmm. What happened? I second winded and grew them back. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What else are we taking here? You're going to take unarmed fighting style, uh, one of the new options, which uh, if you're fighting with no weapon or shield, which you will be doing in Titan form, um, you do an additional, uh, sorry, your your unarmed attacks do uh, 1d8 damage, which is... Very nice. Uh, action Surge also uh, emulates superhuman speed. Uh, and then at level 3, you get Giant's Might, which is where you finally become a Titan. Uh, a bonus action to become large, and you deal an additional D6 damage, which means that with a punch, you are doing more than a great sword's worth of damage. 1D8 plus 1D6 plus Strength Mod. <laughs> Incrementally more than a, than a great sword. <laughs> but with what? One arm. One arm. And you can True. you can see here how like if you went the barbarian route, you know you'd be reckless attacking this whole time. Right, you're right. going to be taking a bunch of damage, but you've got rage bonuses and and blah 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 all that. Yep. Uh, you get rune options here. Take the frost rune, which gives you plus two to strength and con checks. Um, your titan form is extremely physically capable. Uh, and then the cloud rune is probably the other best option. It gives you advantage on deception, which may might be one of your expertise options already so you're going to be very good at that and then has the ability to redirect an attack once per short rest which to me i mean i wish it didn't come quite so early in the build but once he gets access to the warhammer titan um he's able to like fight from afar um by basically like creating a body that he's not inside Right, so you're you essentially redirecting an attack to somewhere where you are not. Okay. <laughs> uh, then at level seven, you get another rune option, and you are immediately going to take the hill rune, uh, which for one minute uh, gives you resistance to physical damage, which is of course your hardening ability. Um, Aaron is able to uh, harden the flesh of his titan, both to prevent damage to himself, but to also like create weapons okay all right Uh, and then at level 10 you get another take storm Uh, this emulates the precognition that he gets from having the memories of uh, previous titan owners and also then your um, additional damage in giant form uh, increases to a d8 okay a little level 15 you can use all your runes twice per short rest and then at level 18 this is your capstone you can finally go huge and you're dealing an additional d10 damage with all your huge punches i mean that's pretty dope mm. now i will say some people are probably like but huge is only huge why isn't this build colossal there are titans that are you know hundreds of meters tall and while that is true we already did a build that went colossal so that it could wrestle the tarask and this build doesn't <laughs> need to do that and you can basically just say that he's really big and tall because again dnd doesn't care about that kind of stuff it's true so there you go all right that is aaron yeager and i learned more about anime (laughs) yes you did wait until next week (laughs) all right before we wrap up let's take a moment and thank our patreon supporters your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week for now and supporters at any level get access to our plot hook of the week bonus content so if you'd like to learn more you can check out all of our rewards at patreon.com slash total party thrill 
You can also leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to support the show and helps other people find us. And if you do that, we will read it on the air. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? Well, given the news, we are going to be talking about playing in Spelljammer. And in the Character Creation Forge? We are finally delving into a little Naruto and building Uchiha Sasuke. I have it on questionable authority that you've mispronounced one of those words. <laughs> Naruto. <laughs> uh, there we go. Everything I know about that anime <laughs> in one offhand comment. And that's it for episode 316 of Total Party Throw. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.